lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Good evening, everybody. Rabbi Mel is here, back with you. After a week, I missed you all. I hope you missed me. I wouldn't know whether you did or you didn't, because nobody writes me. Tell me anything. I'm so lonely. You've got to write me at RabbiMel at GriefOK.com. That's RabbiMel at GriefOK.com. You can write me anything you want. I don't care. Tell me what you want me to talk about. Tell me about future topics. Tell me how you like the show or you didn't like the show. You're going to love this show. But but write me and tell me because I love to be uh, in community with other people. So one of the wonderful things about doing what I do, doing this live show every week, is that I get to meet some incredible people who deal with death and healing and who you never hear about if it weren't for my show. And I seek them out. And sometimes I, I find them through books that they write or articles that they write or they're mentioned on Facebook. You know, I learn everything I know in life from Facebook. I have 3,800 friends. Do you believe that? Okay. So my guest tonight is Deanna Cochran. Cochran? Uh, Deanna, well, she's going to tell you about herself in a minute, but. Uh, for me, she's important because she she's a symbol and she's a role model for people, normal folks like you and me, who don't think we can do what Deanna does. Deanna works with, with the dead. She's a doula. Not with the dead, with the lie, but almost dead. And she uh, helps take care of them and she talks to them and she holds their hands, and she takes care of the family, and et cetera, et cetera. So she's a wonderful example of somebody who probably never thought she would be doing this in her life, and now it's, it's one of the things that she loves the most. Good evening, Deanna. How are you? Good, good evening. I'm very happy to be here talking about anything that will empower people and families to take care of their dying and their dead. So I'm very happy to be here. Good. You know, the um, Voice America Network has several different uh, sub-networks, and we're on the Empowerment Network. There's another grief show called, um, I can't remember, but it's, on the health and wellness channel, uh, we're on empowerment. And I chose that because oh. of what you just said, that I want to empower people to know that they can do what you do. So exactly. I'd like to begin by you telling us the story of how you got involved in the work that you do. Tell us as much as you want. Well, um, and please stop me because we can't see each other. You can't give me the eye contact that, hey, you're talking too much, so you'll have to Not jump to in, worry. okay? Um, but, I will. You know, 
I'm a hospice nurse by training, and my doorway into all of this was my mother's death. So I was a hospice nurse for about five years before my mother got diagnosed with a rare cancer, and she was gone within five weeks. And in that process, um, it was frightening. Even though I had been a hospice nurse, she uh, died very quickly, and uh, we were scared. She was our mother. My sister's a nurse also, a nurse anesthetist, so we're no strangers to all of this, but when it's your family, you're seeing uh, what you're seeing, you know what you're seeing, and um, it still was very emotional. As most that is so resonating with me because yeah. uh, when my mother died 30 years ago, uh, and I had been working with hospices and uh, the Jewish community, Sever Kadisha, the people who prepare bodies and, uh-huh. and wash them and dress them and all that. Yes. And I knew, I thought I knew everything, okay? And then my mom, who smoked too many cigarettes and finally ended up in the hospital at the end, and she died of lung cancer, and I was clueless. Right. Like you just said, I, I mean, I could tell you what to do, but not well, with my mommy there, you know, yeah, the and, yeah, yeah, so when we were going through all of this, I just, um, you know, I was with her 24-7, she wanted me by her side 24-7, and I was, and um, then I remember because of what I knew as a palliative nurse, we were able to keep her out of the hospital. Um, she had a gastrointestinal cancer, which is very rough on people sometimes, and you can spend much in the hospital. And because of what I knew about palliative care, um, and I knew it would be okay to, for palliative care to be used prior to hospice, um, back then it wasn't talked much about. You didn't hear much about palliative care outside of hospice, but I knew that was what she needed. And even though she didn't want hospice, we created our own palliative care team with her. And actually, I had a, I call her my doula now, but at the time we didn't call her that. But I had a friend that walked me through that whole process. And so we had our system. And when my mom died, um, what I thought is, you know, my mom didn't have to spend one day in the hospital because of what I knew. And she didn't have to do anything, like all the the awful dramas that happen at the end of life that can happen because people don't know. They don't know what they can do. They don't know the medicines that are appropriate. They don't know. And so when she died, I thought, my mother was so lucky to have a hospice nurse for a daughter. Everybody should be that lucky. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start talking about palliative care with people so that they know what they can have long before they get on hospice, if they ever get on hospice. Um, a lot of people don't want to get on hospice. Like my mother, she barely made it on hospice before she died, and that's very common. And so I, there's a lot of suffering, though, that goes on out here because people don't have palliative care. So I made it my goal, my mission to educate about palliative care uh, so that way if people never showed up to hospice, at least they would know there's a branch of medicine called palliative care 
that they could have outside of hospice medicine. It's a lot to right. think about. I know I just said a whole lot. I know it's a little complicated, but... Um, no, it's, to, it's not complicated. It's well, beautiful. It's, I, just, I want you to talk was, about... I want you to uh, tell the people what exactly constitutes palliative care in your wisdom. What does that mean? Well, well it's pretty... Everybody knows you know, what that means. Since 2000 there has been phenomenal exponential growth in palliative medicine and palliative care. Um, they used to, it used to be very unheard of, but it used to, even medical, even today, there's so much misinformation and misunderstanding about what palliative care is. So I just want to preface my, what I'm going to say with that. Um, okay. Hospice is, the people think of palliative care, they think of hospice. Hospice is when the only thing that is used is palliative medicine, palliative medicine being used as the sole method of treatment. That's hospice. But the thing is, is that palliative medicine, palliative care, it is a holistic branch of care. It's an interdisciplinary team approach where they take care of medical, physical symptoms, they take care of uh, relationships between the family. They take care of the spiritual needs of the person who's dying and or who's just ill. And the, they take care of the spiritual needs of the family, the social um, needs, any kind of practical needs. They take care of everything. It's a team approach. They built a lot of time in that approach. And the thing is, this is appropriate whether you're dying or not, you don't have to be dying to have it. That's the big thing, is that it can be for anybody with a serious illness, you're supposed to start the palliative care at the same time you're starting a cure-directed treatment, so you can have it concurrently. So people that, say, come into a diagnosis of leukemia or something that they can recover from, and it's expected or maybe uh, an early stage cancer or something that's very treatable, um, you still should have palliative care as part of your treatment plan. So uh, it just takes care of the whole notion that, oh, you will do palliative care only when there's nothing more that can be done. That's not true. So that's my main message is that they call it palliative care. They're trying to separate it from hospice. But it is misunderstood as what you do when you're dying. But, but let me tell you that the suffering that goes on, people, some people with end-stage heart disease, end-stage lung disease, end-stage cancers, there are people that can live for many years with end-stage disease processes, and they go through serious suffering and in and out of the hospital because symptoms are not well-managed. Palliative care expertly manages those symptoms. So, you've already taught me stuff, a lot of stuff. Like, I used to think that when you couldn't cure, cure them medically anymore, you gave up on curing them from their cancer or their whatever they were going through, and you would transfer to palliative care and or hospice. You're saying that's not true, that dichotomy does not exist? 
That's how a lot of people think of it. But now, see, palliative medicine is a new branch of medicine. It had its, it has its chair at the American Medical Association since 2006. It's a new branch of medicine. Uh, the board-certified hospice uh, uh, palliative physicians, um, it's new. It's all new. So it's not that people are being negligent or anything like that. It's that it's taking time to, to get grounded into the scene and for people to understand that palliative medicine is used long before hospice is even thought of. And most people, even in medical circles, even some people who work in hospice have a misunderstanding of what palliative care is. So palliative care, palliative medicine can be used and should be used proactively. When you get a diagnosis, it should be done there, the plan of care, so that you stay ahead of any symptoms and any troubles that could be coming down the way. As a hospice nurse, I can tell you that's why hospice is the expert in palliative care. Hospice are the experts totally in most cities regarding palliative care because they've had the longest experience with it. The home health companies and the hospitals that have developed palliative care programs, there's some stellar programs in this country, and there's also some very, you know, poor ones. They just don't do a good job, you know? They just don't. And so um, there's a, a lot of great ones, though. And the people, the leaders who are spearheading the training and the program development of palliative care in the hospitals and home health and community clinics and freestanding clinics and all of that, um, they're to be commended. But we're watching it grow before our eyes. So it has done amazing. It started as a grassroots movement. I was in San Diego back in 2007 when we were, the NHPCO had, that's our national trade group, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization had a communication strategy uh, like collective. And we spent the day before one of the big national conferences talking about how to spread the word in a grassroots way to the people to know about palliative care and they can have it before hospice. That's a big, big message, big message. And it's not easy to find. It's not easy to attain. So if you're hearing this and you have a loved one who's suffering, the first thing to do is to call your local hospice, if you have one, if you have 10, and see, does anybody know if there is a non-hospice palliative program in town? If you hear, huh, what, no, I don't know, I don't know, I've never heard of that. Mm, um, hang up and call somebody else. Call somebody else, and then call the hospitals in your town, in your area, say, do you have a non-hospice palliative care referral system in your hospital? If somebody, if my dad has another uh, heart exacerbation uh, uh, of CHF or something like that, and I need to come to your hospital, do you have a hospice, I mean, not a hospital, do you have a palliative care program that uh, somebody can see my dad in your hospital that is not hospice related. So they have, people have to ask those questions and you'll have to see what answers you get. And you can always write me, uh, Deanna, D-E-A-N-N-A at qualityoflifecare.com and I'll help you with that. And 
it's going to be a sleuth operation. You're going to have to knock on doors and find out, is there anyone in your area that you can be referred to? If the answer is yes, say you have three programs in your town, they're going to have different referral systems. So you'll need to find out how to get into those clinics at that time. Okay, we got to take a break, and we will be right back. And so if you're out there listening, don't go anywhere because we're not done yet with Deanna. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello, everybody. Rabbi Mel is back with my with my new friend and guest, uh, Deanna Cochran. She is a palliative care and hospice nurse. Do you call her palliative care nurse, Deanna, or something else? Well, you know, I'm not in a hospital system. I'm not in a hospice. I okay. I have my own uh-huh. practice, and so I call myself a palliative consultant. But I am an RN and. I also am an end-of-life guide and doula, so, and I train others and mentor others who are developing programs and practices around the world. Okay. During the break, you and I were talking about some things that I want to ask you. One is, who pays for palliative care? You're a consultant, so you say you go to this hospital and they got palliative care. You take your daddy and, and who pays for that? Does Medicare pay for that? Who pays? 
Well, the thing is, is it's not that simple. That's what I was saying. It's not that simple. It's not grounded in the in the Medicare system yet, or in the um, yeah. there's payment issues and payer issues right now. So, uh, some progressive home health, for instance, will have a palliative program. They call it palliative <laughs> program. They'll have a nurse practitioner and a volunteer be part of that palliative team. They're calling it palliative. There's other programs that will say they're palliative program, but what they've done is they just added a chaplain to that little group. Um, right. It's not the, like the, the, there's a palliative, large palliative interdisciplinary team with hospice. We're, we're not having that kind of support covered yet in palliative care prior to hospice. Um, people are working on that. They're working on getting it paid for and covered because it's um, been an issue. It's, and so, so I guess, it, you know, huh? It will stop being an issue when the palliative care is so successful that they don't have to, the insurance companies don't have to spend more money on hospital care or on hospice care. If you can well, that's save why, yeah, medical companies money, then yeah. you're good. Well, the, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been the big um, thing about hospitals getting penalized for readmissions, readmitting somebody who's had, say, they came into the hospital with a heart attack or cardiovascular or something or breathing issues or something, and they go home and they have to go back to the hospital and they go back within 30 days. Um, the hospitals are penalized for that and having big issues around that, payment issues. And so, yes, palliative care has become very popular in everybody's minds because it actually really does work. Palliative care is an interdisciplinary attempt and team, and everybody is um, very skilled in a good palliative care team. They're very skilled at diagnosing what's going on and um, taking care of that in a very conservative way medically, but supporting the whole family which is needed and necessary when you're dealing with serious illness. So um, it's a beautiful system. It works very well. It's the most economical way to deal with everything. You can still get your treatment, but it's the best way to support a person with serious illness to stay out of the hospital. So it, it's just a win-win for everybody. I'm, I'm very happy that it's become in the spotlight. Um, and it took money issues to get it there. Yeah, it did. So uh, explain to me, uh, I'm slow sometimes on the uptake. So explain to me how palliative care looks different from hospice care. Okay. So in hospice care, you need to be uh, with a uh, prognosis or expectation of life of only six months. So nobody can tell that for sure, but based on what your disease process is right now and what you're doing and how you're feeling and what, how you're looking, a doctor says, you know what, I don't expect you to be around within six months from now. When you get that, then you can qualify for uh, hospice care. Uh, insurance companies will pay for it. Medicare will pay for it and all of that. And then you get on hospice services, and hospice uses palliative medicine as their sole method of care. If you've seen people on hospice and it's been a good experience, 
No doubt. I have seen some of the most miraculous um, medical marvels I've, I've ever heard and seen in my life in hospice care. I've been part of the team during uh, terrible things going on and symptoms and problems trying to uh, manage. And palliative care is is amazing. It's it's uh, a, a miracle. It can be things people can be turned around very quickly with palliative medicine uh, when it's expertly applied and you have a great team. So. Um, there, I can't say enough about it. So hospice uses uh, uh, that. I understand. So, so they can yeah, turn but that's, around quickly. So it's not a simple matter of just saying, oh, here's morphine. Oh, here's a, a little drug for your nausea. A lot of people think hospice is just, oh, you've not, you're not going to do anything and you're just going to go give them a pill and wait for them to die. That's not hospice. So that same concept of that team and figuring out what's going on and addressing it from all angles can be done and is being done with people with illnesses that they expect to recover. So it's the same thing. You're um, okay. in the hospital system. Say you get, uh, you say something <coughs> takes you to the hospital. They have a referral system of, oh, this person here has a disease process that um, can bring them back in over and over and over again. Or it could be that, hey, this person needs some better symptom management they'll do a referral to the palliative care team in the hospital and that team will come and work with that person and work with the family and get them set up. And if there is a a clinic associated with the hospital or in town or a home health that has a palliative uh, department, they'll connect with them and then organize, um, you know, when the person goes home and that would be a perfect world. But because it's not a perfect world, um, we have to create our own, um, like my sister and I did with my mom, you have to create your own little palliative support. So um, it takes uh, much longer than our program could possibly get into, but I'm just saying to be very resourceful um, to find this in your area, you might be super lucky and they and you have a wonderful program and all you have to do is call the phone and they'll tell you exactly what to do and, and you go do it. Right. So, okay. Yeah. I, I want to I move forward a little bit. You've been talking about okay. medical details and, and all that. I want to talk about spiritual stuff. You okay. You said a few minutes ago that You've, you've got some wonderful stories about, you didn't use the word miracle, or maybe you did, but tell, me, tell us a story, the best story you got, about somebody who was on palliative care and, and was healed or recovered. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I've got quite a few, actually, but, I mean, they, they died Okay, but they didn't die then when they came on to hospice. Um, this one, one person I think is pretty remarkable. So they called me as a doula. Like, I can, I'll tell you, when I tell you a story, it'll be I was a hospice nurse when this happened or I was a private doula when this happened. Okay. So I was hired as a consultant and a doula for this family, and the man was in a neuro rehab and he was dying, and he was on a ventilator and all of that stuff at, at the hospital, and the family got super upset, and they wanted to take him home. 
out of town. So we went, uh, they called me to help with this. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this is going on. But they had approval from the establishment and they had all their ducks in a row. And I was there to help them get home. And we got them home, got a respiratory company to get them all settled, got hospice involved right away. They were okay with calling hospice because they are the masters of palliative care. I said, regardless, if you want to keep hospice or not, you need them right now. If he qualifies, you'll be very lucky. And I know he'll qualify and let them help you. And let's get his, so they brought him home on a home ventilator. Um, Hospice was right there. Everybody was there to admit him and take care of him. He couldn't eat. He was, had a peg tube and all of that. Within uh, two months, he was off the ventilator, off the peg tube, eating, up, mm-hmm. walking around, and um, he got off a of hospice within about, I think, seven or eight months. He got back on hospice within another six or seven months. He did die with hospice in the next several months. But there was no way you could have told me that when we saw him in that uh, rehab and the way he was breathing and the ventilator and the whole bit. Um, and the distress he was in, that he was that that was going to happen. So it just shows you that with excellent palliative care, miracles can happen. The miracles are often they're physical, yeah, go ahead. they're mostly emotional and psychological and relational. Not everybody with great palliative care is going to recover, of course, but the you'll have the best physical um, life possible with palliative care. The best that you can have, you'll have it with palliative care. Right. There's studies that show it extends your life. There's studies that we have that show that palliative care can actually, like, and, and, and they measured it within hospice, can actually add to your life, add time. So it's the, the misunderstanding that hospice is about dying and t- giving up and nothing more we can do is so far from the truth. Well, it's not only about, it sounds to me, it's not only extending your life, but it's adding quality to the extending your life. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you know that you could stay in a hospital and they could put you on tubes and all the rest and breathe for you and you can stick around another month or two, but you're not really here. You're not dead, you're not alive. I mean, you're not breathing, so I guess you're dead, but you're not, there's no quality of life. And that's the the beauty of, to me, palliative care and hospice. Yes. That um, the pain, if it doesn't go away all 100%, it certainly is lessened to a great, um, to, to a much lower level. And you just feel better because I have a theory that one reason you feel better with palliative care is because uh, you need palliative care or hospice care because you have lost control over your body. And when all these people come around and take care of you, you're feeling like, wow, I still do have some control. I, if I don't want something done, I'll tell them and they won't do it. But more than that, there are all these people here to take care of me. I do matter. Yes, I may be dying, or am definitely dying, but at least I don't have to give up. I have some control over my life, which leads me to my next question, which is when you're in a room with families and patients and all that, do you talk about dying with them? 
If they want to. You know, I really let people guide the way with that. And because um, my belief is that I'm there to help people live well until they die. I, I'm, um, you know, they train us to be experts at dealing with dying and medically managing dying with the team and um, by doctor's orders. And there's protocols and we learn really quickly. Like I worked uh, crisis care and after hours uh, for years and I'm the only one in the middle of the night. I'm out there going to the homes and um, there's crisis going on and we don't have the lab. We don't have uh, MRIs. We don't have um, all these equipment that they do in the hospital mm. to figure out what's happening. So they train us very well how to deal with people uh, with um, symptoms that go on with different things. And um, it's about living and it's about living well. And so that's what, uh, palliative care is all about is quality of life using very conservative measures uh, with medications, with treatments, the most conservative. We start very small and we go step by step um, up the ladder. We don't start big. Like the why people feel scared with us sometimes and our medications is because they're having big things go on, a big trauma, an accident, something terrible happens. They rush to the hospital. They're in severe pain. So, you know, here we start the heavy-duty drugs to help with the pain. And a lot of people uh, report a lot of bad side effects and uh, feel like they were given too much or they hallucinated or they had all these symptoms that were very scary um, because they were given too much medication. But the thing is, it's a different type of setting. So in hospice, we have to re-educate a lot of people that, no, 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 it's not the same as when Uncle Bob was in there and he was seeing, you know, crickets on the wall. This, we start very small doses of medications. We try to do non-opioids first or non, the non-hard stuff first. We use medications that have multiple purposes. Uh, so that way we can try to use one drug as, instead of three you know, we do the best we can for that, and um, we do a great job. And so, and palliative care is uh, just does a wonderful job with that. Wonderful job. Okay, but I'm not going to let you dodge my question. You, I oh, asked is- you if families, <laughs> if families talk about death in the room, and you oh, yeah. said if they want to. If they does, want to, does they don't the patient want to, ever I don't. ask you? Does the patient ever ask you what's going to happen to me after I die? Oh, do they go there? You know, nobody yeah. really has asked me that. Um, I'm the nurse, right? As a hospice person, I was the nurse. They usually didn't ask me that. As a doula, most of the time as a doula, I've been hired by the caregiver, and the person who's dying is already unresponsive. So it's been only a few people that I've actually talked to as a doula that were still conscious and aware before they went unresponsive. And they didn't talk to me about that. A lot of people, the most, the biggest thing I, I have walked with, you know, many, many, many people over 17 years, and mostly what they talked to me about is the actual dying part, the what to expect. People, most people right. are afraid of dying, not death, not what Got happens it. after, what's happening as they're dying. So that's okay. where can I, ask, can I ask you, 
If if I were your patient and I said, okay, Deanna, what do you think is going to happen to my soul after my body dies? Do you have any feelings about that? Well, I do, but I really don't think it matters what I think. So when I have pe- I've had people ask me very personal questions about me and what I think. And I'll tell you that most, I say 98% of the time, when I turn it around, something like, um, I, I thank you for asking me, but I'm more interested in what you think about that. Um, they usually go and tell me what they think. They really want to talk about what they think more than they want to hear right. what I think. They're asking me okay. so that I will, so they can open the door to talk about themselves is what I have found. And so there's right. only been a couple of people in all these years that pushed me to go and answer their question. And I answered it. I okay. thought to myself that if they are here so vulnerable and they are allowing me to care for them and they're giving me the honor to care for them. And it's really important that they want to hear this very personal stuff about me and it's going to help them. I, I thought about it long and hard and it worked early in my career that I, I, I made the decision to actually answer them. And I feel okay. very happy about the conversation. Okay, we, we got to take a break and we will be right back. And so, if you're out there listening, don't go anywhere because we're not done yet with Deanna. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. 
All right, Rabbi Mel, back with you with my friend and guest, Deanna Cochran, and she is a palliative care specialist and a doula, and and she, I just said to her that it's a testimony to the human spirit and strength that there are people in this world who do what she does, because most of us would be too afraid to be in the presence of the dying. I remember when I had my first experience when I, and this was 42 years ago when I was a young rabbi who thought I knew everything about everything. And I got a call from a member of my congregation who told me that Jack Goldberg died and we have to prepare his body. Well, I never learned about that in rabbinical school. They never taught us about, about the Hever Kadisha and how you wash and, and clothe and sit with the body until the funeral. I didn't know anything about that. So I said, Stuart, I'm not, we're not going to prepare his body. You're on your own. He says, well, there's nobody else. And so I was touched by his passion, and I went over to the funeral home, and that was the beginning of my career. So I understand how difficult it is. I didn't want to do it, but I'm glad I did. It's the best thing I ever did. If I died tomorrow... I would be very happy that I had contributed to the final days of hundreds of people in 40 years. But yes. you, asked, you said to me, Deanna, that you were more interested in what I thought about what happens after death than what you thought. Because you're like, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not meant to be judgmental. You're a hired hand and you do a job. And and it's spiritual, and it's also physical and all that. So I'll just explain to you and my listeners uh, who have heard this before, there are, I believe, only two ways to think about what happens after we die. One is what we all learned in Sunday school, and that is when we die, if, we're, if we've been a good person, we're going to go up to a place called heaven, and we're going to party for the rest of eternity. And we're going to be back with all the relatives. And it'll be a reconnection with our past. And if we're a bad boy or girl, we're going down to hell where it's hot and there's fires and you don't eat a lot and you have to go back to school. That's the major punishment. You have to take exams all day. And you're not connected with anybody. So that's what I learned in Sunday school, I have now come to realize and to believe in a second way, much more poetic way. And that is, I believe that by our actions during our lifetimes, we leave memories and we teach life lessons to those who know us. So when Mel Glazer dies, people are going to remember me in one of two ways, either for good, that is, he was a good person, he shared his life with others, he got involved in making the world a better place, he gave time and money and care and empathy and all that to the rest of God's children. That will be heaven for me. On the other hand, when Mel Glazer dies and people say, you know, he was really a jerk, he only cared about himself, he didn't spend any time with anybody else. He kept to himself. He was, uh, he, he was just 
He wasn't interested in anybody but himself. He was arrogant, and he stuck to himself, and he didn't help anybody. That's hell. In short, Mother Teresa's in heaven, and Adolf Hitler is in hell. And I don't care whether there's a physical place or not. Now, when I talk to people, I get both um, afterlife views, and I support both of them. Because for me, it's not about who's right. We don't know who's right because nobody's come back 30 days after they die to tell us what's going on. So nobody knows. I believe that, that the, the body is buried or cremated or however you dispose of the body, but the soul lives on. So I still remember my grandmother. I still remember my parents, my aunts and uncles, my first wife. I remember all these people and all the life lessons that they taught me. So for me, they're in heaven, and I don't need a physical place um, to to support me in my grief and allow me to go forward to healing. But I don't know. I don't know if I'm right. I guess I'm right for me. Uh, Deanna, if you told me that you believe in a physical heaven and hell, and that, you know, I'll be back with my mommy and daddy and all the people who died before me, I'd say, yeah, that's right. And I would go with you and I would support you and all that. So I'll tell the story which I've told many times. Uh, I was in the hospital with a guy who was in his 90s, and he was dying. And his wife, who was also in her 90s, was very upset that Cy was dying, because who would take care of her? Uh, And so in the hospital, he was lying in bed, and I was there, and she was yelling at at Cy, Cy, don't die, don't leave me, I need you. Well, finally, Cy died. And we were all there, family was all there, and we did some prayers, and he finally took his last breath. And so she starts beating on his chest, trying to start his heart up again. It's the strangest thing I ever saw. She starts beating on his chest, yelling and screaming at him, Son, you can't die. So I decided, I'm a rabbi, I'm supposed to do something here. I'm supposed to say something comforting. So I pulled her away from him, and I took her in my arms, and I said, listen, don't worry, he's going to be back with his parents. And she was like, uh, I don't know, four foot and a half, and she looks at me and she says, Rabbi, Cy didn't like his parents at all. They weren't nice to him, nothing. Uh, and and so I obviously didn't say anything comforting, but... I broke the tension in the room. The family was hysterical laughing. And the nurses outside were wondering, what was this rabbi saying? That I mean, he just died, and the whole family is laughing. So it's my favorite story because it reminds me that I don't know anything about, nor does yeah. anybody else know about what happens in the afterlife. There are a lot of preachers who know exactly what's going to happen after you die, but they don't know anything. So now, my so I, I want to move from that to talk to you, Deanna, about how you personally feel inside, not physically the work that you do and the 
the care that you render, but how do you feel being involved in this? When somebody dies and you walk out of the room, your job is done. Are you a changed person? I mean, does this affect your soul? Does this, does this give you feelings that I really have a mission in this life and, and, I, and this is it? And I feel so good about what I do? Or is it, I don't want to say just a job, but is it just a job? Well, no, I mean, it's what I've been called to do. So it's my life. So this is like anybody else that might um, wake up knowing that they love gardening or that they always, they love cooking or they love to be with, um, you know, however it is that they commune with nature or their family or with art or with their soul. This is how I do it. Um, it, when it was, when I realized that I had this calling, it's just, I, my whole life is entwined with this. It's not like a work day of eight to five and I'm done. Right. This is my life and I um, work very different hours probably than most people, but it doesn't feel, the only thing that feels like work is when I have to do computer stuff or I have to feel like I have to write an article about, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, that's yeah, what I feel like. Yeah. And so I it energizes you. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't tire you out, life. even if you don't get much sleep sometimes. But it's being my, in that room and doing what you do energizes you. It sounds to me. Yeah, and it's it's who I am, and it's just who I am in the world. So it's not it's not like I go, oh, job well done, Diana. When I've been at somewhere, or maybe I didn't do a great job. Who knows? Like. I don't judge that. All I know is that I showed up and I did the best I could to be a channel and of understanding to hold that space for families in respect of their family system and the way they want to do things, the way they feel. Like when I said, when I turned the question back to them, it's not because I'm a hired hand that I do that. It's that it doesn't matter what I think. It does not matter what I think. It matters what they think and they feel. And, you know, the way this happens is that somebody who um, they're tired, they're dying, their voice is uh, waning, their energy is waning, we don't need to waste time on me. And a lot of people who accompany others through illness and dying sometimes mistakenly think that when they're put on the spotlight that they're really care about what they think, <laughs> and they don't. Yeah, it's like, right, you know, right, they're really trying right. to process their own life. They're trying to process their own life. They're dying. They're trying to process their own life. Or the caregiver's trying to process what they're, they're losing their mate. They're losing their daughter. They're losing their mother. Whatever, whoever they're losing to the physical death in this reality right now, it's usually grievous for most people. Most people aren't doing the, I'm going to reunite with you in spirit in just a few days, and I'm so joyful. I know that we all want everybody to be happy about this sacred transition. Most people are terribly sad. They're grieved. They're sad. They're not doing a happy dance. Uh, It's it's just not the way it is. And I know there's a big death positive movement I'm part of that wants everybody feeling really good about what's happening. The biggest thing I feel that I can share around that is that if the choices that you make prior to death, 
the choices that you make for your advanced directives to let people know what you want, that those choices, that you get to choose good palliative care, that you get to know that there's support for you, that's going to change the dying process so that that whole experience is not one of terror and up and down and in and out of the hospital and all kinds of symptoms and lots of suffering so that the memories that everybody has and the person who's dying has a pleasant experience as possible and the people around them are having a more, um, you know, uh, better quality of experience so that this time period's not looked back on with trauma. It's looked back right. on with a bittersweet, a joyful, we learned how to die together. We learned how to, to, to take care of our loved one. We did well. We did good. A lot of times people are left feeling helpless, powerless, upset. They didn't do enough because they witnessed so much suffering. So that's what this whole death empowerment movement is about. That's what I'm part of. I've been training doulas and mentoring people around the world for many, many years. I've been doing this myself for many years in a private capacity. I love hospice. Hospice needs help from many people, too. They're busy. They need help. You know, uh, hospitals need yeah. help. Home health need help. Everybody, there's a lot of holes in health and death care where doulas, end-of-life guides, end-of-life coaches, people that have a calling and a passion for, to help families realize their own strengths and help them guide the way so they can do all this themselves so they don't need us one day. One day they're not going to call me and say, I need you to help me. They're going to already know. I've already worked with this family. They know. If they want to call me next time just to have me around uh, because I'm a blessing to them, great. But not because they have. It's because they already know how to take care of their family. That's what we're here for is to empower the people to have the knowledge, the wisdom, and gain that confidence that we have. And I think that's a great place to end our show. And I want to thank you so much, Deanna, for being my guest because you you have enlightened so many of us around the world, so many of our listeners who I hope will not feel so afraid to call on people like you and people connected to you and, and, and the life of their dying ones will be made easier. So... Thank you so much, and all my listeners, thank you for um, staying with us, and I hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.